Welcome to season two of Bear It All, where we share the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between about biliary atresia. If your child is facing a life-saving liver transplant, please reach out to the Children's Organ Transplant Association, or CODA. The CODA crew are looking forward to learning more about your family's biliary atresia journey. CODA works with families to lessen the financial burden of a life-saving transplant and support is provided at absolutely no cost. Please call CODA today at 1-800-366-2682 or go to coda.org forward slash get started to learn more about how they can help. Hello, and I just want to welcome you to another episode of Bear It All. I'm Jordan. I'm the VP of Bear and the co-founder, and I'm lucky enough to have a guest host with us today. That is Miss Brittany Munn. Brittany is one of our board members. She's been there since the beginning. We're very lucky to have her. So Brittany, thanks for being here. And why don't you talk to us about our guest and the episode? Sure. Thanks for having me again. I am here to introduce Amanda Habermel. She is the manager of hospital development at my local OPO here in Western New York. They are Connect Life. I actually got connected with Connect Life probably about four or five years ago. And I volunteer there as much as I can, whether I help out with the different clerical stuff or what I mostly do is I actually go around and help them with speaking engagements at the local high schools and just kind of put the story out there for organ donation and blood donation. OPOs are a huge part of our nation's way of helping with organ transplant. So Amanda, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Brittany and Jordan and the Bear listeners. Thank you. (laughs) I was hoping that uh, you'd be able to at least tell the listeners a little bit about Connect Life and what you guys do, what your history is for Western New York, just to help us get a better understanding of Connect Life and what you guys do. Um, So Connect Life is Western New York's uh, local OPO and organ procurement organization. We're one of 56 in the country. We're the smallest. We cover eight counties of Western New York. So we have a pretty small population and that really affects, you know, how many donors we have in this region. We also cover um, eye and tissue donation throughout the state, excluding a small part of New York City. So we're really expanding out. In 2007, we became the first organ procurement organization to umbrella organ, tissue, eye, and blood donation, which was a huge event for the smallest OPO in the country, but the people of Western New York really responded to it. So not only can we save lives through the gift of donation, but we can, through organ and tissue and eye, we can save lives through local blood donors. To me, that's just incredible that a small organization like that can become the first to offer all of that for this area. And I absolutely love when I volunteer there that you guys provide 75% of the blood supply to the hospitals in Western New York. So that tells me that we've got a lot of wonderful people out there donating blood in the community and that it's staying local for the community. Can you tell me what the role is of an OPO? So we're all non-for-profit organizations. We're responsible for the procurement of organs for transplantation. 
Essentially, we recover organs from deceased donors and provide support to donor families, clinical management of organ donors, and we provide education to the hospitals to identify potential donors. They refer them to the local OPO. We evaluate these patients, and then we go in um, to approach families to discuss donation with them, and then to allocate the organs once authorization is obtained. We then work with the transplant centers to procure the organs and make sure that they are going to the correct recipients and transplanted safely. Outside of that, we also do what you do, Brittany. We provide public education about organ donation and really bring the awareness of it and encourage people to sign up to be registered donors, what that means when you're registered donors, and what it means to give the gift of life. It's a 1% opportunity that you'll ever be able to give a life-saving organ at the time of your death. And it is deceased donation when we're talking about OPOs and what we do. So it's such a rare opportunity that most of us will never have that opportunity to pass within the method that accommodates organ donation to happen. I have a question and I have a feeling that your sentiment, Amanda, is probably similar to mine. When you watch shows, medical shows like Grey's Anatomy, like all the other medical shows out there. How often do you find yourself yelling at the television? That's not how it works. (laughs) Explaining to other people that there's a lot of misconception on the transplant process. So I had to stop watching the shows. (laughs) Um, Sometimes they get it right. I think they all have really good intentions when they're um, evaluating those, but I did have to stop it. I think if you're in the medical field or if you know just a little bit about procedures, Um, it's always good to get fired up when we see, you know, mistakes or, you know, misconceptions. Um, I provide new nurse orientation and I provide resident education to um, the hospitals in this area. And the one thing that always sticks with me when I see this is you always see someone running down a hallway with a little tiny red cooler that says organ on it. We've come so far with organ, um, profusion with organ packaging. I am happy that they're not transported in those anymore, the little tiny red cooler. I'm not sure what's in that when they're running down, but that's probably the number one misconception for me. Um, the innovation with pump technology for, you know, just packaging organs, pumping organs, perfusing organs has changed so much in the 16 years that I've been doing that, that that has to be the one that gets my blood boiling the most when I see that little red cooler and what looks like someone that's not a transplant surgeon running down the hallway with it. You know, when we started talking about this episode, that was like one of the first things that came to my mind is to your point, like as soon as you know, like just enough to be dangerous, just enough to like know what's going on, those shows just lose their, I don't want to say appeal or credibility, I will just say those episodes lose that for me because there is opportunity to explain how it actually happens. And well, yeah. and it also so- fuels the misconceptions that are out there and and the myths that might also be out there that keep people from wanting to participate in or the organ donation or blood donation process. Do you get that at all from when you are meeting with families and whatnot that does do those questions come out and myths and misconceptions come out while you're sitting there talking with them to discuss potential donation of a family member? They do. And that's a really great point. And it actually goes back to Jordan's on TV. They really never show the approach process. They never really show the life 
saving events that go on before these patients ever have an opportunity. You know, organ donation is only an opportunity after all medical interventions have been exhausted at the hospital. That referral is provided to us. We huddle with the medical team. And only after the family has been provided an end-of-life conversation or that all life-sustaining therapies have been exhausted, only then do we go in and talk to families. So we don't provide prognosis. We are not part of the medical team that cares for families. But the coordinators who go in and talk to families, it's a conversation. It's not questions. The families has questions. We answer those questions, but we never ask families questions. If I would go in and just start asking families, what do you think about donation? Have you thought about donation? Would you like your loved one to be an organ donor? That's the worst day they've ever had. We only deal with traumatic patients. We only deal with families who are facing the worst day the worst event, that loved one's not coming home from the hospital. So I think when you think about what an organ procurement organization does, yes, we procure organs, tissue, and eye, and we have blood donors, but what goes behind that is so much more. And donation is really shown on TV as a quick process. And it's a very slow. When we talk to families, sometimes an approach conversation can be five minutes long, Sometimes it can be two or three days long. You know, the family may not be in that space to have that conversation. You really have to identify when that space and that time is a good situation to go in and talk to that family. Um, Families want more family to be there. They want to say their goodbyes. They want to update their family. And that conversation may not be the right opportunity. So that back end work of it, of the work that goes into our staff, um, how to talk to families about donation, how to debunk those myths. Um, The myths are are strong. You you see them, Brittany, you go out into the public and you see people and you talk to people and you hear their calls and their concerns and maybe barriers that's keeping them from signing up to be a donor. When I talk to people about the registry and what it looks like and the opportunity for donation, I always pause and let them know that if you register, there's a 99% chance you will never have that opportunity. But if you are that 1%, have that conversation with your friends and family today if you register. Or if you registered last year and you haven't had that conversation, let them know why you want to be a donor. If you don't want to be a donor, let them know exactly why. Any type of search for organ donation, you can find a complete list of myths. Call your local OPO. We're happy to talk to you. We love to talk. Brittany, I'm sure you love to talk as much as I do about this. Um, So we will give you every information from religious perspectives to medical perspectives um, to who's waiting on the list and who can actually be transplanted. I think the biggest question we have from families is, but my loved one died in this method. So how can they donate their organs? Um, They're 75 years old. I'm sure their organs are not viable for transplant. They died in a method that maybe their liver wasn't in the best state. We feel that maybe they're being ruled out and providing education to a family in a conversation that's circling end of life opportunities, I wanna say, is sometimes difficult, but our staff and most OPO staff, I would say all OPO staff who is trained to talk to families about donation, and there's only a few people that are trained to talk to families about donation. The hospital staff cannot talk to families about donation. It's a conflict of interest. And that lies with the OPO to have that conversation. So when you're having those conversations, you wanna make sure that you have all the information and that a family who's not looking at a patient who's registered can make those decisions based on the information that you've given them. It's an informed 
process that you're having. You're having an informed conversation about organ donation at that time. So myths do come up. I think it's the medical rule outs that come up the most. Yeah, I know when I'm out and speaking, whether I, I think I did something at the uh, the local Bison's game one day, and um, I had a lot of people come up to me and ask me about the myths. One of them being, um, if I were to register as an organ donor, then the doctors wouldn't save my life because they'd want to use my organs for, you know, organ donation. And it blows my mind that there are these myths that are out there that think that suddenly their life isn't as important as apparently other lives are who are waiting on the list. And so they would, they wouldn't be saved, but I mean, they're out there and it's kind of tough to have um, those conversations with those people who are so convinced and that's their reason for not becoming an organ donor. Do you have those, I guess, barriers when you're talking with loved ones, especially if the person wanted to be an organ donor and then now you're handling the families and discussing this with them and maybe they didn't have that conversation with their loved one and they're shocked and now having to proceed with this decision for their loved one? Is it is it a struggle to get over with them? And, and I'm assuming you might not even get over it. There might be times where somebody says, hey, I want to be an organ donor. They check the box. And then that time comes and the family says, absolutely not. We don't want to. Is that something that you deal with on a regular basis? So New York State, I'll start with kind of the, the law of what registering looks like in New York State. New York state is one of 38 states that has a registry of authorization. In 2007, New York state moved from an intent registry, which when you signed up to be a donor, you had the intent to donate if you had that opportunity. That gave a family an opportunity to withdraw your wishes if they did not want to pursue the donation for various reasons. And all reasons are pretty valid when you're sitting with a family. They feel that their loved one's been put through enough. They feel that they don't want their loved ones to, what they say, suffer anymore. They themselves would donate, but at this point, they do not want to donate their loved ones or honor the registry. Um, So there's a lot of things that come up in a conversation. So in 2007, when the law changed to authorization, and this is important for your listeners, this is important for everyone, the law stated in New York State that if you signed up to be a registered donor, that no one could rescind that opportunity from you if you fit that 1% criteria and had at least one organ that could be gifted to someone. That was an important measure. We only procure organs out of deceased donors. So this is enacted when you are deceased. So you have to be legally declared either brain dead or you're going to be a donation after circulatory death donor. That's probably a whole nother podcast conversation. The only way for the hospital staff to know if the patient's on the registry is when they call it in to connect life or any other OPO. And we identify if the patient's on the New York state registry. Sometimes we can register, we can identify if they're on the national registry, but we do check those other states that reciprocate our law as um, authorization states. And we honor those. We know where you registered, how you registered. Um, The department of motor vehicles in New York state did take it to another level with the law. They will no longer issue you a driver's license or state identification without the person who's registering for those to at least acknowledge one of three questions about anatomical gifts. Yes, you want to be a donor. What organs and tissues you want to donate. You can defer the question or say no, not at this time. If you select the latter two, that's going to defer back to your decision maker at the time of your death. But if you register, we know where you registered, how you registered. We have a copy of it. 
Um, we don't take it in and show it to the families, but we know that it's you. So when we go in to talk to families about the registry, um, our approach for every patient is the same, registered or not. We introduce ourselves. We start out in a conversation. And I've approached over 500 families in my time, and they've all been welcoming. They've all wanted to have a conversation to some degree. And maybe they need some more time, and I reintroduce myself to them later. But um, we go through significant training throughout the country for this type of approach. And if a family is ascending to the authorization for donation, we can work with families to at least get them to park in a position of acknowledging that that's their loved one's wishes. But for the most part, they know their loved ones on the registry. Or once we start introducing the registry to them and let them know that these wishes that their loved ones wanted to fulfill and to have you honor that with them would mean the world. They're on board. Now, in the perfect day, they're on board, but there's challenges. There's always challenges with anything when you're talking about end of life and decisions that your family made unknown and honoring someone wishes that you may necessarily not agree with or were surprised to hear with. That's a hard path to walk, but um, our team's really great with that. That's what we focus on. We want to focus on honoring their loved one's wishes and preserving that opportunity to save those life through those wishes. Now, back to your other question about kind of public education and awareness. It's big. You can never have enough of that. Even for your organization, you can never have enough awareness for that. And I think that that's where we could always have opportunity to grow with awareness and education. There's only one solid rule out for organ donation. One, if you meet the criteria for brain death or the criteria for donation, it's a neurological death that we're talking about. But it's cancer with chemotherapy or radiation, but we still have to evaluate every one of those patients. Every other patient is in full criteria to be screened for suitability until they're deemed not suitable for procurement and transplant. But everyone doesn't know that. You know, I think that that's the biggest thing. The biggest ones I get is the one that you said, they won't treat me. Quite the contrary. I think you know that too. You have to be really the most critical patient in that hospital. You have to be intubated with a breathing tube, a ventilator, you know, breathing for you, essentially, you have to have a severe neurological injury that you are not going to survive that admission. And you have to have every critical care consult almost looking at you and trying to save your life before we ever are involved, because that's the way donation works. But the public isn't aware of really how donation works. There's a fine line of too much information. And there's a, a good line of just enough information. <laughs> And that applies to so many things in life. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that you mentioned is you deal with an OPO and the people that are trained to deal with that. You guys deal with traumatized individuals, right? This is the worst day of their life. I kind of have to ask a personal question. I mean, you've been doing this for years and you've been bedside. You've been kind of in every role of an OPO. How does constantly being part of a families and individuals most traumatizing part of their life. How does that take a toll on you as an individual? And I know that you guys get training, but I can only imagine being essentially the quote unquote bad guy for so long, right? Um, yes, it's a, it's a unique job. There's only a couple hundred coordinators in the country that do this. The average span of a coordinator through the country is 36 to 48 months. It is taxing. Connect Life has a little bit higher as me. You know, we have um, a higher retention rate with some of our coordinators. I see it personally as 
just a stewardship to someone saying yes and bridging them to get to that transplant. And when a family says yes, that's all you can think about. Um, when you're on call as an organ coordinator at our facility and at most facilities, your call starts at 8.30 in the morning and it ends at 8.30 the following morning. And we never leave our donors' bedsides. Um, we're working with families. We're lucky enough to have family service coordinators and clinical coordinators. And sometimes we merge and have to approach families. I don't want to say have to approach families, but we have an opportunity to join that space with families to speak to them about donation. And once we have that donation conversation, some families will leave and come back. It takes anywhere from 12 to 96 hours to get a donor from authorization into the OR for transplant because we have to, uh, you know, evaluate the patient and perform tests on patients and make sure that we're allocating the organs properly. And then once you start allocating organs, you're now talking to transplant centers. And not only are you caring for the patient, the donor, but you're caring for those up to eight patients that's receiving those organs as well. So they're prepping their patients for transplant. Those transplant surgeons are getting on a jet and traveling to Buffalo. They could be coming from Kentucky, uh, Michigan, New England, the South, and we all have to get them and coordinate them there at the same time. So that's what your job is tasked to when you're the coordinator setting there. You can be there so long you can see shift changes in the hospital and the nurse return that was taking care of that patient the day before. It can be taxing just with the emotion of the family, the emotion with the procurement surgeon saying, you know, I want to go at this time and another one saying, I want to go at this time and trying to facilitate that because they have their patient's interest. And who's giving the gift of life some days? It's a peds patient, and some days it's someone who has lived into their 70s or 80s, but they're all fulfilling the gift of life. And I see that as a stewardship. I see that as an honor that I'm working part of that. And I'm exhausted for a few days after that, and our staff's exhausted for a few days after that. That's okay. You know, you you come home after your your 24 hours is over and you can't sleep. You're thinking, are they in the air? Are they being transplanted? When am I I going to get an update? I mean, it's such a rare opportunity in this area. We have around 65 donors a year. We are the smallest OPO in the country, whereas larger OPOs can have four or 500 donors a year. It's tough. We talk about self-care a lot. We do have appropriate days off. Should we ever need any counseling? There's counseling offered to us. And we talk through it with each other and you know, honor those who give the gift of life and those who are receiving the gift of life. So I think for me personally, that's kept me in it because when someone says yes, that's a huge step. That's a huge step with understanding that life can go through transplant, that you're giving the ultimate gift. Um, so thank you for having us on here. And thank you for asking those questions because you guys go through it as well with what you do. You know, anyone who only deals with traumatic, we have traumatic referrals that sometimes can't be donors because of, you know, they're unstable. It's just hard to even go through a huddle like that to hear that. So, yeah. (laughs) One of the things too, that I think is really special about Connect Life, and I don't know if other OPOs do this or not, but the, I think they're called angel boxes. Is that what it's called? Because I remember taking a tour a few years ago and seeing that for the first time that you guys put these special boxes together of um, the loved one that donated their organs and present that to the families of those loved ones. And I just thought it was super special 
but I forgot what is in them. What do you guys put in them to hand to the families? So Brittany, because you are a volunteer, I have to let you know we have an expanded pool of volunteers who also make quilts. They're called donor quilts. Yes. So they get a bag and it's um, it has a donor quilt and these quilts are they're provided by a few churches and you know every stitch has a prayer in it for that donor and it has a prayer in it for those the recipients and it's something that the family can take home and we have so much feedback over these that they can put it over them when they're going through the box so that donor memorial box that's also given to them it has a plaque in it that says my final gift and it, it's a beautiful poem about their final gift we can cut uh, lockets of hair and place in it and that's something that if the family wants to come in and do that with, with us when we place the donor quilt on them or if the hospital staff wants to do that because we kind of come in and tell the staff oh we'll take care of it from here but that's been their patient that's been their family too so we really want to incorporate it and let the family see that this is part of the clinical team this is part of the donor team and they care. They truly do. The hospital staff do. In that box as well, we can obtain EKG strips. Families also always want a heartbeat strip. Uh, if they want to do that, we can we can provide that. Um, we can take thumbprints and handprints if the families want those. But it's something that the family can take back with them and put special photos in or really whatever they want to put in. And if they want to take some time just to spend time with their loved one and think about them after that. Our families who want to participate and who want to receive donor correspondence and find out where the organs were transplanted, we facilitate all that as well. Um, and that's just part of that continuation of care of that donor family and honoring that loved one. So yeah, uh, thank you for saying that you were able to see those boxes and it means a lot to the family. It truly does. And, you know, we do facilitate honor walks for our donors should the family want them, or if they don't want them, the staff in the critical care units, they'll come out as the patient's being taken to the OR and just pause and thank them. Outside of the angel boxes, do you guys do any other like events or anything to honor the families and the, the ones who passed? We do. We do a donor recognition ceremony every year. Um, this year, I hope it's in person. Uh, we had one in person last year, so I would assume that it would be. It's once a year. Um, prior to that, for COVID, we did have to do virtual. But before that, we always had a donor recognition ceremony. And that's when families from the year prior who donated or who may have wanted to be invited later on, who wasn't ready to come out yet, they come, they receive a, uh, a medal. It's from the government stating that their loved one was an organ donor. And this gives us also an opportunity to have recipients come out, not their recipients, that the year that they were transplanted, they had met them, to give these medals out. It's a beautiful ceremony. There's memorial videos that shown with families' photos, the donors' photos. And it's just a special time where families can kind of talk to each other if they haven't met a family that maybe walked through that donation path. And at some of the facilities, we have recipients speak. If we've had a family meet, recipients, then they can speak together as well. But we provide six-week follow-up on organ donors and tissue donors. And for organ donors, organ donor families always have a coordinator approach them in person, unless the family can't 
come to the hospital in person. Tissue donation approaches are completed over the phone, but they still get the follow-up from us with letters. And should they need any information about potential recipients, if they want to know a little bit more, they can write letters to us and we can facilitate getting those to the recipient's OPO to make sure that if the recipient wanted to receive correspondence from their donor family, that they can obtain it. If they choose not to receive those correspondence, the OPOs hold those um, in hopes that maybe they want to come forward and receive those correspondence. So our family services at Connect Life and at every OPO is very active with their families. A donor family is a special family through donation process with texting a few weeks later to our coordinator saying, hey, I need to talk to you. Or can I just run something by you? Or, how, how are you doing? I was just thinking of you. So we form really close bonds with a lot of our families. I think that we've really focused on the OPO's role on the donor side and it deserves its own episode and everything because it is a very complex layered thing. But, you know, some of our listeners are in the post-transplant phase. So explain to, explain to the listeners, what is an OPO's role on the receiving side of an organ? Like what could they expect from their OPO or the OPO's role from the recipient side? So from the recipient side, so every organ that accepts living donation, it's deceased donation that is going to be the OPO point. So a recipient could always reach out to the OPO to volunteer. I'm always looking for volunteer recipients. Um, I like to have a recipient join me for clinical education. That's one of the most important pathways that an OR could hear an OR that only sees procurements. And I have a few wonderful speakers that come out and share their transplant journey, um, how long they waited, if they've had multiple transplants, and thank the staff for assisting with donor procurements. We only transplant kidneys and pancreas in this region. So our ORs aren't used to seeing, you know, thoracic recipients uh, or really any abdominal, any, any transplants. So you can always volunteer. If you want recipient, if you want donor information, um, you can contact your local OPO. And if you don't know who that is, you can talk to your transplant center who you received your transplant through and they'll point you in that right direction. And if you want to perhaps reach out to your donor family and maybe don't know what to say. They have resources on how you can write a letter and what to expect. You know, we always see these wonderful, wonderful pieces about recipients meeting their donor families. And I wish that could happen for everyone, but sometimes donor families aren't ready. Sometimes recipients aren't ready. I can't imagine how that feels on either side. You know, it's you, your life has been saved. There's just so much that goes into that process. And meeting a recipient, there's just so much that goes in. And every family that I've had the honor of being with to meet their recipient donor, it's <laughs> there's not enough tissues in the room. It's wonderful. But if you are wanting to find out how you can get involved with your OPO or find out more about your donor, um, reach out to your local OPO. You can go through Transplant Center. I'm in the Transplant Center here in Western New York at least once a week, touching base with them. Uh, we work very closely with them, so I'm sure that your local OPO in your region has a very close connection with the OPO and the transplant center. Thank you. Now, I'm going to switch to Brittany. I'm going to kind of put you in the hot seat for a second. So Caleb, your son, Brittany, he received a living donor from your husband, correct? Um, correct. What made you, so you went down the road of living donation. What inspired you to be involved with Connect Life and OPO? 
you know, since you did go down that living donor path, what inspired you? I think we, I I like to say that we were lucky that the organ that had the issue for our son was a liver and that we had multiple options for donation, right? But I think what really pushed me to want to reach out to the local OPO was wanting to give back to the transplant community and understanding at that point just how crucial it is to have more people on the organ donation list because we were faced with the possibility that Caleb might never get a liver within the time that we were given. We, he was given three to six weeks to live with how long the list was and where, I mean, he landed pretty high on the list with how sick he was, but just trying to get a pediatric liver or a liver that the doctors were willing to separate to provide for the inf- my infant and infant was just really tough. You know, that's a that's a small portion of donors and situations and knowing the short amount of time that we had and thankfully we had the decision where we could go the living donation route. So I think that was kind of one of the biggest things that pushed me into wanting to help volunteer and, you know, encourage others to sign up for organ donation especially in my own community, knowing that it's crucial to get up, get, get yourself on the list and be an active member of society, help this, these situations and help those that are struggling, that are, are very sick. You know, if this does end up happening to you, that you could save potentially eight lives. So that was the biggest, biggest thing. I really wanted to just dive right into the organ donation scene here in my community and Connect Life actually used to be called Units. So that's um, who I originally joined uh, in volunteering. And then shortly thereafter, they changed their name, but they've been such a great organization. And the, the longer I've been a part of the organization volunteering, I've learned a lot of new things about them. It seems like every year I learn something new, something interesting. Um, and the the latest thing that I did learn was that they also provide um, and partner with people who want or medical doctors and whatnot in, in the research realm of things and help provide organs and tissue for that. So Amanda, I, I was just curious, you know, we don't have to dive into it completely, but how, how does that process for you guys? Like, how do we, if somebody wanted to contact you to connect and get potentially receive an organ or tissue for uh, research purposes, what is that process like? Um, so it is a case for case request. You would need to contact Connect Life directly. Um, you can go to our website. We do have a general email address. Um, you could call our phone directly from our website. We're connectlife.org. You can contact myself. I can help facilitate those requests to the correct person. Organs and tissue for research are handled very sensitively. If they cannot be transplanted, then tissue research has to be granted on the authorization. So there are a little bit of nuances, but it's definitely possible. We work with so many researchers uh, throughout the country and really throughout the world uh, to facilitate those medical behalf tissue samples. I just wanted to clarify when we say if anyone needs to contact Connect Life, it has to be a medical professional. (laughs) Yeah, you have to have the credentials for that. But I know we know a lot of people that are medical doctors looking to further research having 
just one more connection, you know, potentially get a liver that they can look into and do further research on uh, or tissue or whatever that might be for them in particular, you know, to have, have that connection, I think would be nice for them. I agree. And then as we're wrapping this up, Amanda, I think everyone at Bear and our listeners, I think everyone kind of agrees that knowledge is power. And if any individual wants to volunteer for an OPO and help spread the word about organ donation and help educate kind of like Brittany does and everything, can you tell the listeners what the best path would be if they wanted to volunteer or help their local OPO? Contact them immediately. We cannot get enough volunteers and OPOs, I'm sure, with every place. Volunteers can always spread the word. Just donor registries, walks. We do so many events. Just even coming in and the boxes that we were referring to, the donor family boxes, helping us fill those. You know, it's everything matters with donor intent, but you could search your local OPO Uh, organ procurement organization, and it will pop up and you can just call them. You can get on their site. Our site actually has a place for volunteers. If you click on it, Um, we always need volunteers. We're actually growing our volunteer base now. So if you want to volunteer at Connect Life, come onto our website or give our main number a call that's listed on the website. But there's 56 OPOs. They will be glad to have all the volunteers they can take. (laughs) That's great to hear. So if anyone wants to volunteer, go to their local OPO or, you know, do connect life. And it may not be Amanda specifically that reaches out to you, but someone that works with Amanda will. So thank you, Amanda, so much for taking the time. I could really tell. And, you know, as you and I have the luxury to see each other face to face, well, Zoom, but I can tell the listeners that as Amanda's talking, you say everything with such intention and such authenticity. And I just want to thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Join us next time as we bear it all.